0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination, Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. This week we're returning to last fortnight's topic, though with a slightly different cast. We rejoin our tale on 14th of October 1066. Two armies faced off across the field, six miles northwest of Hastings, Sussex. On one side, William, Duke of Normandy. When Edward the Confessor passed on without an heir, William asserted his right to the English crown. He was a blood relative on Edward's mother's side. They were cousins, once removed, through Emma of Normandy. As you may recall last fortnight, Edward's family sought refuge in Normandy after England was overrun by the Danes. Edward grew up at the Norman court and had friends there. He was very much their kin. By now an extremely capable warrior, having cleaned up all manner of outlaws and challenges, William arrived in a huge fleet with a seasoned army estimated at 7,000 Normans, Franks and Bretons. On the other side, King Harald Godwinson, son of the Machiavellian Godwin, Earl of Wessex. His claim to the crown was through Edward's marriage to his sister Edith and a great deal of scheming by his family. Harold and his men were still looking for their second wind, having just defeated his own brother, Tostig, and the Norwegian king, a giant of a man now referred to as Harald Herdrada in a battle far to the north. Having crushed those invaders at Stamford Bridge, Yorkshire, the army had crossed more than 300 miles in less than two weeks, picking up volunteers as they went. The year prior, or perhaps it was two years gone, the official record is very sketchy. Harold's life was in the hands of Duke William. For reasons that are now a little obscure, but it probably related to Harold trying to free family members from being held hostage on the continent. Harold had been nearly shipwrecked and then captured in the town of Ponthieu. The Duke, a man named Guy, planned to ransom Godwinson for a massive sum, but William had gotten wind of the incident and either successfully demanded or paid for the release of Harold. While his honored guest, Harold had sworn an oath he would not challenge William for the crown. But the day Edward died, he reneged and had himself crowned monarch. Though there is debate over where exactly the two armies met, the chroniclers agree the ensuing battle was bloody by the standards of the time. Godwinson also showed up with an army of around 7,000 men, many untrained, unprepared volunteers. The Normans, on the other hand, were extremely well-trained, disciplined, experienced warriors. Harold had the advantage of the high ground, and as such had a defendable position. But would that advantage be enough to win the day? Ultimately, the English were no match for the Normans, who shot reins of arrows into them. The knights and foot soldiers clashed hard with the English shield wall, swords, javelin and maces in hand. Harold Gobinson's plan recalibrated to just keep the shield wall up and hope like hell the Normans grow tired and demoralized when it doesn't break. The shield wall managed to hold for much of the day but as the day wore on the advantage went in the way of the Normans. Once in retreat frantically tripping over one another on an overcrowded battlefield It was all over for the English. Approximately 6,000 people were killed, mostly on England's side, and including King Harold Godwinson, who some legends claim caught an arrow in the eye in the heat of the battle, but who more likely than not was hacked to pieces in hand-to-hand combat. Duke William, once uncharitably titled a bastard, was now King William of England an all but title. Later, he would be rebranded The Conqueror, but following the battle, he still had some way to go. Now, we'll pick that up in a moment, but first, who was William the Conqueror? Born around 1028, in the Norman town of Falaise, William was the result of a summer fling between Robert, Duke of Normandy, and Herlever, the daughter of a local tanner, or perhaps a town undertaker. Robert never married Herlever. But the couple would remain friendly, and Robert would introduce her to her future husband. He found well-paying jobs for several of her family at his court. Importantly, he happily acknowledged the child as his son and heir. In 1035, while planning his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and aware he may not make it back, Robert called his magnates in to swear an oath of fealty to William. The worst happened after Robert caught a mystery illness in Nicaea, and died in July 1035. William suddenly found himself Duke of Normandy at an extremely young age. At first, things went smoothly for Duke William. His great uncle, Archbishop Robert, became something of a father figure, while taking on much of the day-to-day management of the dukedom. Unfortunately for William, The Archbishop was old and passed away of old age in 1037. Following Robert's death, Normandy sank into chaos. Now in retrospect, Normandy, like many French dukedoms, was primed for such chaos. In the late 8th century, France, well, technically Francia, fell under the rule of a powerful warlord named Charles. We now call him Charlemagne. Crowned emperor on Christmas Day 800, Charlemagne built a massive kingdom not seen in Europe since the days of the Roman Empire. Following his death, his empire would be split into three, and then fall into anarchy, and then finally reassemble itself into two separate empires, essentially modern-day France and Germany. He with constant border problems in the places where they could not conquer any further in Charlemagne's time. The Frankish kings found the best way to maintain order was to cede a lot of power down to the Dukes. The king expected the Dukes to do the heavy work for him. Their payoff, the Dukes became de facto kings of their own regions. This decentralization led to the invention of medieval castles along the borders and of hiring soldiers from within the everyday classes rather than simply calling upon other aristocrats. When hiring on merit rather than blood, this led to a high proportion of very tough, dangerous men within the warrior class. Though there were precursors, the cataphracts of Parthia from the diaspora, for one. The Franks were busy inventing knights and in feudalism. Even if they would have referred to their knights as chevaliers, and feudalism, a collection of fiefdoms. Now it would be wrong to think of these men as representatives of chivalric virtue. That whole concept arose out of late medieval romances. These men were mostly gangsters on horseback. In Normandy, following the archbishop's passing, a gang war broke out. Castles went up all over the place without approval. Rivals were whacked. Other warlords took to the mattresses. In 1040, two of William's guardians, Alan of Brittany and Gilbert of Brion, were assassinated in quick succession. In 1041, his tutor, Osborne, was murdered. Tellingly, this assassination took place within the Duke's own bedchamber as the young Duke slept. While nominally, Duke William remained in charge after Osborne's murder, something of a coup took place in the background, as a new entourage made largely of the killers took their place. The dynamic changed somewhat in William's mid-teens, as he and his cousins, William Fitz Osborne, Roger of Beaumont and Roger of Montgomery, grew into young adulthood and took a greater hand in the running of the dukedom. But the following years were marred with war and mutiny, which, as you'll guess by now, was more of a constant than an aberration. For one, his cousin, Guy of Burgundy, went rogue in 1046 in the south of Normandy. Legend has it his mutiny kicked off with an attempt to capture William while he was staying at Vallone. Taken unaware, William had little choice but to flee in the dead of night as the coup really kicked off. Having lived to fight another day, William went, cap in hand, to the King of the Franks, Henry I, for assistance. After a bloody war, William won his title back at the Battle of Valle in 1047. Coming into his majority, William took hold of the reins, putting down many rogue warlords now plaguing his land. He faced major competition in 1052 when Geoffrey Martel, Count of Anjou, picked a fight with him. In 1054, he'd face off against Henry I himself, beating him too. In 1057, both adversaries returned, and if he needed further proof that William was formidable, he defeated a fellow Duke and a King of France at the same time. In the meantime, back in England, Edward the Confessor had his own problems, primarily with his horrible in-laws. In 1043, Godwin, his father-in-law, started giving away earldoms to his relatives as he saw fit. His eldest son, a sociopath named Svein, picked up an earldom in the southwest Midlands. In 1045, Harold Godwinson was given East Anglia. A nephew, Bjorn Efronson, also picked up an earldom, thanks to Uncle Godwin. In spite of this, Edward's first few years as king were relatively harmonious, but he would soon be at loggerheads with his father-in-law first they clashed over foreign policy godwin wanted to send a flotilla to help his allies in the civil war in scandinavia but edward vetoed the suggestion then a big clash came over swine and his awful behavior 1047 swine kidnapped a woman named egafu the abbess of leominster his intention was to force the abbess to marry him and then take over her large estate Edward intervened, forcing Godwin's eldest to restore the abbess to her position, and to then leave her be. He then exiled Svein, who travelled to Flanders in Denmark. When he returned in 1049 to beg Edward's forgiveness, both Harold Godwinson and Bjorn Efrenson made it known Svein should not be allowed back. Svein won Bjorn's support, and then against all reason murdered him. Godwin stepped in in support of his son, and convinced Edward to pardon him. The two men clashed again when the Archbishop of Canterbury passed on, and Edward ignored Godwin's advice, giving the role to his old friend, Robert of Jumièges. Unsurprisingly, Godwin had his eyes on that job for one of his own relatives, and was furious over the appointment. Then in 1051, Edward really put a cat amongst the pigeons. That year, he announced, on his passing, the crown would go to William of Normandy. This set the scene for the conflict that followed. But there was one more incident yet to happen. Later in 1051, Edward had a visit from his sister's husband, Eustace of Boulogne. On his way home, Eustace and his entourage were assaulted by some locals at Dover. A furious Edward ordered his army to march into Dover and wipe the region from the map. Godwin was the Earl of that region and refused to send men out to kill his own people over such a trifle. The two men's tempers flared as years of repressed frustrations came to the fore. Rival armies ramped up right to the brink of a civil war. When peacekeepers stepped in, Edward stated the only way Godwin could pardon himself would be to bring his brother, Alfred, Back from the dead. At the eleventh hour, Godwin backed down, fled for Flanders. His sons took off for Ireland. Edward, still furious, had Edith banished to a nunnery. But then in 1052, the Godwins returned with a massive fleet. Sailing down the Thames, they demanded the reinstatement of their lands and titles. They had come with overpowering numbers. Edward was facing a hiding to nothing, so he gave in. This was the beginning of a long, uncomfortable cold war between the factions, but saw the Godwins seize power. Following Godwin's passing in 1053, saw Harold Godwinson position himself as a future king. Following the death of Edward the Confessor in January 1066, Harold Godwinson had himself crowned King of England the same day. Flash forward to Hastings. Clever and Machiavellian as the Godwins were, it was not enough. William had won the day, and he could hardly have known the game of whack-a-mole he was entering into. Initial headaches were understandable. After waiting a fortnight for those in London to come to him to submit to his rule, William made plans to travel to London. Along the way, as various leaders from other cities did seek him out to submit to his authority, he discovered London had elected, but not yet crowned, a young teenager from Hungary named Edgar Atheling. Edgar, the last remaining grandson of Emma Nynonsides, had been fetched for on the continent, and a couple of English earls, Edwine and Morcar, had pledged to protect him, the Normans took to invading towns outside of London and destroying them until London's clergy, an aristocracy, ceded to William's authority. William was crowned king on Christmas 1066, as a number of defeated English soldiers plotted, and many Norman knights patrolled the streets looking for troublemakers. Now on to that game of whack-a-mole. The Normans seized much land and other wealth from their enemies, and through the construction of castles throughout the land, consolidated their place. In 1067, William made his way back to Normandy for a little while, feeling his new kingdom was in safe hands. Then several rebellions erupted across the land. There was Edric the Wild, a nobleman from Shropshire, who turned outlaw. Facing a much bigger foe, he turned to guerrilla warfare before crossing the border into Wales. In Kent, locals crossed the English Channel to petition Edward the Confessor's brother-in-law, Eustace, for help. Though Eustace had fought alongside William at Hastings, he had since fallen out with the king and was happy to join the revolution. The Kent rebellion fizzled out after Eustace's army landed was subsequently defeated at Dover. Rumbling started in Northumbria. What's more, the leftovers of the Godwin clan were not yet done, though they would load up several fleets, attack numerous seaside towns, lose, and then limp back to Ireland on several occasions. The first, in 1068, a concerning number of letters were intercepted out of Exeter. They were bound for other cities, called on their leaders to join the revolution. All of this action brought William the Conqueror back to England. In 1068, William marched into Exeter, besieging the city when leaders refused to swear fealty to him. The siege lasted just 18 days, when the resident Godwins ran for the border. Then the north of England absolutely blew up in a series of rebellions. William's response was to march an army northwards, building castles as he went. As they went along, they slashed and burned as they saw fit, upsetting the locals. When they faced off against the rebels, the rebels always folded, scattering further northwards. Some eventually entered Scotland and took refuge with King Malcolm, Macbeth's successor. As soon as William called victory in that region and made his way back to London, Yet another wave of rebellions broke out. And at this point, William had other complications to deal with. Many Normans were tiring and fighting never-ending guerrilla wars. Others were there simply as mercenaries. Both were placated, for now, by the same thing. More land, or more money. But this presented a problem. More resources equaled more confiscations. Equaled more disgruntled locals joining the revolution. In 1069, Svein, King of Denmark, also sent a fleet over. They joined up with the rebels in the north of England, and then destroyed the city of York. William was getting very tired of this, and again travelled up to York to find his enemies had scattered soon after hitting the city. William was furious. He built more castles. He bought the Vikings off with a massive sum of money on the provision that they would leave in a couple of months' time. Unsurprisingly, they didn't. Then he carried out a genocide. The harrying of the north was a particularly ugly occurrence, but deserves to be condemned as a genocidal act. At the end of his rope, William ordered his army to spread out across the entire north of England. Wherever they went, they were told to destroy all sources of food. If everyone starved, William saw this as a small price to pay for making the north of England uninhabitable to Vikings and resistance fighters. Perhaps as many as a 100,000 of England's two million citizens starved to death. Thousands of emaciated refugees moved southwards, hoping for mercy. Many more took to eating their pets to sustain themselves. and when that food source ran out, the flesh of a recently deceased. Chroniclers tell of people selling themselves into slavery as at least slaves got fed. William further antagonised the people by ordering soldiers into the churches. Many rich English had left troths full of money with the church for safekeeping. The king needed this money to sustain his army. This was followed by further land confiscations, taxes and a call to draft young men into service, to guard all of Williams' new castles. Now we have all of our context out of the way. Enter Hereward the Wake. The most of what we know of Hereward is essentially folklore. All the same, let's work through those details. We don't know exactly when Hereward was born, but his birth was most likely in 1035 or 1036. Some claim his moniker, The Wake, reflected his high situational awareness, but more likely than not he was a member of the aristocratic Wake family from Lincoln. I think we can safely dismiss the other claim, that he was a child of Leofric, Earl of Mercia, and his wife, Lady Godiva. Known to most for having allegedly rode through the streets of Coventry naked, to make her husband rescind a heavy tax on the people of the town. But it does seem fairly certain he was a privileged child of the upper class, just not one who rode in the nude. He was also quite the hell raiser growing up. The legend states that somewhere around his 18th birthday, he committed a crime heinous enough that he may have caught Edward the Confessor's attention, forcing him to go into exile. Now, typical of all good folk stories, this is a point where he went off on a hero's journey. Did he really travel through Cornwall, Ireland, Friesland? This is more than likely. While on his journey, did he clash with witches, wrestle a giant bear into submission, and rescue a Cornish princess on her wedding day to a tyrant? Well, almost certainly not. He appears to have travelled to the continent, almost certainly to Flanders. Hereward worked as a soldier of fortune for Robert the Frisian, the brother of William the Conqueror's wife, Matilda. He was probably involved in a number of conflicts, including a war between Robert and the people of the Scheldt Estuary Islands in modern-day Belgium. Allegedly yet another big, powerful man, he distinguished himself as a mercenary. While on the continent, he may have fallen in love with and married a gallo-Germanic woman named Turfida. He'd soon abandon her, and legend tells of her entering a nunnery. Legend states Hera would return to England days after his then-boss, Count Baldwin V of Flanders, passed away in 1067. Now this could be the case. Though the first we know of him in England is he was a well-known outlaw, wanted by the authorities by 1070. On returning home, he was said to have found his ancestral lands confiscated. His brother was not only murdered, but his decapitated head was skewered to a pike, outside the gates of the family estate. Now, the legend claims Hereward crashed a drunken party of Norman soldiers soon after and wrecked the lot of them like a scene out of Kill Bill in Revenge of His Brother. One presumes this didn't happen, like the legend suggests. But there may be something to the claim. He assassinated the Duke of Surrey's brother-in-law, Frederick. Whether Frederick had a hand in his brother's death or not, or subsequently called for him to be brought in, dead or alive, he most certainly was murdered by an outlaw, fitting Hereward's description. The legend paints an image of Hereward as a Robin Hood figure, a dispossessed aristocrat leading a band of merry men in a guerrilla war against an oppressive king. Just when some band of Normans thought they were safe, Hereward and his men would spring out of a forest to lighten their pockets. As such, the man became a folk hero and a perceived writer of wrongs. Living off the land and protected by the people, an avatar of a resistance movement, he fought against a cruel, unjust regime, though an outlaw, a wolf's head, who made his way through highway robbery. He robbed the rich and he gave to, uh, well, Vikings. On at least one occasion, he gave a massive sum of treasure to swine of Denmark's fleet, who were still hanging around the north of England. In the summer of 1070, Heroid the Wake arrived at the Cambridgeshire town of Peterborough with his band of merry men. They plundered their way throughout the town, then robbed the monastery of all its wealth. The rationale he gave as he was taking all that money, precious items, was that he was taking them somewhere safe, as the Normans were preparing to take them all for themselves. The main source on hereward the Gesta Herewardi, claims hereward had a vision of St. Peter one day, and seeing Vieira, of his ways, return the treasures to Peterborough. But this never happened. When the Vikings finally sailed for Denmark, they took the treasure with them, losing much of it to a shipwreck on the way home. Now it is certain Heroid became involved in a resistance movement, congregating on the Isle of Ely, an island in the middle of a swamp in Cambridgeshire, Many of the resistance fighters were survivors from the harrying of the north, with ties to Svein of Denmark's Viking fleet. In May 1070, Svein of Denmark finally joined his fleet on the Humber River. His men were emaciated for months of trying to live off the land up north. With many dying of hunger, they were in no fit state to wage a war. When one looked around at the hellscape William had created in the north, One had to wonder what they were even fighting for. Seeing no value in pressing on, Svein ordered his ships to sail for home. But this didn't put an end to the resistance at Eli. Angry dispossessed men continued to flood in from across the land, joining in for the mischief. We don't have much by the way of the specifics as to what the community were up to, but they appear little more than background noise in William the Conqueror's tale until a sidelined Northern Earl joined their ranks. In the upcoming Patreon bonus episode on the Battle of Stamford Bridge, I mention a 1066 battle at a place called Fulford, where two aristocratic brothers, Edwine and Morcar, faced off against Tostic Godwinson and a giant of a man named Harold Hadrada. The Earl's tried and failed to defeat the invaders, in this episode, we briefly met the brothers as they promised to be the muscle behind King Edgar Atheling. Back then, when faced by a Norman army who'd slashed and burned their way through Buckinghamshire, Herefordshire and Birkhamstead, they gave up the resistance and swore their fealty to William. But over the following years, the brothers ran with the foxes one day, the hounds the next. They were not to be trusted. And as such, found themselves sidelined by the king. At some time in 1068, the brothers went rogue. Edwine headed north into Scotland. Morcar joined up with a resistance in Eli sometime in 1070 or early in 1071. For some time at this point, Herewood and his band of merry men had been making trouble for the king. But it was low-level stuff, robberies and murders that were unlikely to upend his kingdom. However badly they were doing so, the local authorities were dealing with the problem. To this point in time, William had a string of existential threats to deal with. For brevity's sake, I underplayed the uprising that preceded the harrying of the north. But if anyone was taking bets on who would be king by year's end, the odds on favorites were all northern rebels and the Vikings. Finally, at ease to catch his breath. William was startled back into action again by these two traitors. So he decided now was the time to send the full force of the army down to the Isle of Eli. 1071, as the rebels of Eli may or may not have been planning a new campaign, a large force showed up at Eli. Details of the battle are sketchy, the differing accounts contradictory, but it appears boats surrounded the island. William's forces built a giant pontoon bridge across the swamp. The Normans allegedly tried and failed multiple times to storm the island, by one telling. Or in another telling, William the Conqueror himself led the charge, and the rebels were soundly defeated, the survivors having their hands and noses cut off. Some were, as one famous resident of the island had been a few decades earlier, blinded. However, it went down, the Conqueror won. Morcar was captured and jailed. In 1087, as William the Conqueror was on his deathbed, among his final words was an order to free the Earl from prison. Some historians believe Morcar died some time before this order was given, unbeknownst to the king. The heroid. A shadowy figure in what has been a half-season so far, for shadowy figures. Mr. ZZ, the Poe Toaster, Richard Cox, and I promise just one more mysterious figure before the end of the year. Well, he disappeared back into historical obscurity. There is every indication, as it became clear the battle was lost. Hereward led his own followers through the marshlands, undetected, to safety. From there, legends exist of him being captured and then transported from prison to prison or of getting into a feud with a man named Ogger, or of making peace with William before settling down into a law-abiding life. Truth is, we know he got away, but we don't know what happened to him following the fall of Eli. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media. Links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon. Also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice, and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks time for more tales of history and imagination.